This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, a long-time aspiring screenwriter with an agent, an accomplished playwright, and a non-stop over-65 and talking podcaster, Beth Webster. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. How are you tonight? I'm very happy to be here, and I'm ready to go. Watched the movie three times. Just can't wait to talk about Parenthood. Excellent. So, Beth, with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first up, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. I guess I fell in love with movies when I was at college. And The African Queen was on television. And it was Tampa University. It was the wild, wild west, the 60s, 70s, crazy times. There was a panty raid in my dormitory. And I didn't even hear it or see it because I was so enraptured with the movie. I wanted to be um, on the Dick Van Dyke show. I wanted to be, you know, the one who was typing. I wanted to be the girl. And so I went with my girlfriend to Hollywood before there were computers or anything. We had 40 stacks of the screenplay that we wrote about, it's coming out now, but it was uh, about Barbie and Ken. And it was 20 years later and she had a basket ass and her dream wardrobe was a sweatsuit and the dream mobile was a suburban and she had three kids and it was messed up. And he was a workaholic and we brought it out and um, we ran through town and I've gotten really close. It's really hard to get to the finish line. It's really easy to get an option. My closest best brass ring was Eric Clapton and he was going to break a cardinal rule and do a movie with us. And the movie was called Pursuing Eric. And it was about these four girls trying to meet him. Because my girlfriends and I, we wanted to meet him. We never met him. Nobody had been to a concert. And we decided that we would test positive for drugs and go to his rehab center in Antigua. And it was a perfect plan. We were, you know, it's going to be easy. One of the girls was married to a psychiatrist. She could get him to do anything. And we were going to be like his best um, recoveries. He was going to love us. And we were going to go when he goes there. He goes twice a year. We had it all planned. One of the girls said, Beth, um, that's wrong. And I was like, oh, my God, it is wrong. So they said, why don't you make it into a screenplay? So I made it into a screenplay. And the music was twisted. Like Layla, she's 40. He's 40 now. So He's good looking. He is a doctor making a lot of money and he has her on her knees, right? Like all of the songs were twisted up because she's not 21 anymore. And he read it and he liked it and he didn't have an agent. He had a lawyer and they were taking it to Hollywood to get a green light for me. It was on his lap on a plane. Okay. So I'm like out of my mind. I've already told everyone in my town that I've made it. (laughs) Buying champagne for everyone. Because how can it go wrong, right? So there he is at Columbia. He goes to the record guys first. And he's got three kids with his new wife. And he didn't want to be on tour very much anymore. So they had this kind of contentious thing. And uh, 
Then the guy goes, what else are you here for? So he says, well, I'm walking this over to the studio part. And um, he said, what do you, what do you mean? The, the music guy. And he goes, well, we've got the screenplay and we're going to get a green light and it's going to be great. And the studio executive, the music guy says, Eric, you can't do that. You're an icon. So I get this letter from Eric Clapton that says, I'm going to err on the side of caution. His whole life, the only time he's ever erred on the side of caution, and it's me. <laughs> so, I mean, I've got, I got sob stories that you wouldn't believe. So close, so close. Everything was so close. Peter Fonda, I had millions of things going, and you just can't get it. I've had an agent for 30 years. He loves me. He doesn't call me, but he loves me. And so that's my major focus is getting that done before I die now. And I do say that to him, please. And so I plays are easy because you can get people in your town. You can, I don't live in LA, so I can't be on their baseball team or, you know, babysit for their children or anything, but in my town, I can get plays done. So I do that. What I adore about podcasting, and I've got over 300, is nobody can stop me. Nobody can stop me. I can do it. I can do it all by myself. I don't have to wait for him to call me back. And so this is my life. And I love movies. So yeah, movies are my focus. And they get me out of depressions and everything. I mean, I have watched The Thin Man about 400 times because it'll stop me from drinking. It'll stop me from crying. I just love it. So yeah, I've got I I've used I've used movies to save my life, I think. So you clearly have a passion for this. So then it begs the question, what is your favorite movie and why? Oh, the producers. <laughs> the producers is so funny. And I don't mean I mean Zero Mustel. I went I was raised in New York and I went to school with the nuns, okay? Like that is one of the reasons I'm a mess, is entirely from kindergarten to high school, girls' school, horrible, horrible, terrible, going to hell for everything I did, right? But these nuns got us on buses and we saw everything on Broadway, everything. And they would get special tickets because they were nuns and we, we saw it all. Zero Mustel was fabulous. The producers, every single minute of that movie is perfect to me. I want to laugh. I really do. Like, I, I, I can... Laughing is, they call, you know, they say dying is easy, laughing is hard, right? In Hollywood, the producers and Gene Wilder is crazy. It's crazy perfect. So, oh my God, and the Nazi, every single moment of that movie was so, yeah, that to me, a perfect comedy. But I will say that Parenthood is a perfect comedy. It is, in its, and it's got a terrible title and people won't even watch it. The cast is amazing. Everyone was perfect. Babalu Mandel and Lowell are like two of the greatest screenwriters. So yeah, I, I lean towards comedy and I don't think anything's really funny right now. Like it's, it's hard without offending people to be funny. I, yeah. So I would say that I'd say the producers I'd have to, and it's, that makes me sound stupid. I'd like to say Dr. Zhivago or something, but I can't. David Lean's great and I love him, but I can't do it. I can't lie to you. Well, as Dad normally likes to say, the movies is one of the few art forms where you go collectively to the same thing in order to have an individual experience. So 
Certainly, we are not in the habit of movie shaming on this podcast. Whether you have not seen something or you like something that may not necessarily be everybody's favorite, that is quite all right with us. We are fans and supporters of movies everywhere. Although I am glad that you decided to pick the original with Mostel and Wilder, because I love Nathan Lane, but it's better. Well, you also have some issues with Matthew Broderick that we don't need to get into on this show. Yes, unfortunately, I met him. You did? And what happened? Well, it was not a pleasant experience. (laughs) Wow. Again, another time, another place. So finally, what makes a good movie for you? I have to root for somebody. I have to love somebody. And and really, I, I did this deep dive into the writers of Parenthood. And they did um, they did Night Shift, they did Splash, they did a whole bunch of movies. And they say that if you can make someone care, then the laugh, instead of being at seven, it'll be a 10. If people love you, and that's what I, like if I fall in love with a character, he can take me almost anywhere. And I will laugh louder and harder because I love him. And so anybody that can create that for me. And I don't, I don't fall for a lot of people. Like I'll go to movies. I mean, I review movies and most of them, I can't, I can't get into it. I, if there isn't anybody, and especially if they're rotten, like I can do Jack Nicholson for some reason, he can be totally rotten and I will forgive him and I will love him. But a lot of anti-heroes, if, he, if they're cheating on their wife or they smack their dog, I'm like, I want you to die now. You know what I mean? I want somebody to shoot you because you hit your dog. I'm very, I'm very tender about it. But if I fall for somebody and I'm on the ride and I get on the roller coaster and I'm on the roller coaster for the whole movie, I'm grateful. And I will see it again. And I will see a different movie every time I see a movie. I'm definitely with you there. I have some of the same issues, but it's mostly having to do with like TV shows. If we get to a certain point in a story and I just don't care for the characters anymore, I just don't find any reason to continue on with the show. It's why it took me a little bit of time to get into succession the first time around because all the characters are kind of horrible, but I eventually found somebody to root for. What did you root for? I'm a Kendall guy. I've always been a Kendall guy since the initial episode because I also feel like the forgotten son at times, but it's all right. Really? It's a feeling, Dad. I can't necessarily say it's rational. I mean, when you're a kid, you want so much love from your parents. It's like unbelievable. You're so self-centered. You want everything. I don't think anybody feels like they got enough from their mother or father. It's just, it's too hard. You know, I mean, but I, I can see that this guy likes you. Well, what a great natural segue into discussing parenthood. It is, it's so funny how it encompasses every, every rotten family dynamic in such a funny way. There's definitely, and there's definitely characters that feel unloved. Everyone does in the whole movie. That's why I love it. So tonight we apply our patent pending Stanley rubric to a Steve Martin classic of the 1980s with a star-studded cast, Parenthood from 1989, directed by Ron Howard, written by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, starring Steve Martin, Keanu Reeves, Rick Moranis, Joaquin Phoenix, although in the movie he goes by Leaf, and Diane Wiest. This movie was nominated for two Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Diane Wiest and Original Song for Randy Newman. So Beth, you picked this film. What made you select it for this week's discussion? 
some there was even more stars in this than the ones that you mentioned. There were this is the best casting I've ever seen. When you ask me what movie, when I in 1989, I guess I was in my mid 30s or something, right? So I had a an eight year old and a four year old. So I watched the movie, and I was a big into Steve Martin and Mary Steenburgen, right? And you know, like <laughs> the kid who can't play baseball and he's going to end up being like a a murder, you know, a psych- psychopath, like all the little problems with the kids. And, you know, do you think, would it be all right if I threw up? Yeah. And then the kid throws up on you. They There were 17 kids amongst this um, little group of guys. They took real things that happened in their real lives. And the movie starts with the kid throwing up on them. And that happens to everybody. My husband came home from a business trip and he was like first class all the way to Japan. And he had this epiphany and I'm sitting in the car, like steaming, waiting for him for an hour. And he swans into the car from, you know, first class, which you get a little buzz from it. Right. So he goes, you know, I had this epiphany on the plane. I had an epiphany. I love my family so much. And he picked up Matt and Matt, the little one, he was like a year old and Matt threw up on him. It was like the funniest. I thought it was hilarious. And when I saw that in the movie and it was like the first three minutes of this movie, I was like, I am in, absolutely in. And the second time I saw it, I had scary middle school and middle schoolers. Like my my oldest son had hung on his um, overhead fan, a uh, stuffed animal, a bunny, and he stabbed it. <laughs> that was what I was dealing with. Keanu Reeves, um, no, um, River Joaquin Phoenix is that guy. He's got this like paper bag and he, he stalks through the house and he goes up to his bedroom and nobody knows what's in his paper bag. Middle schoolers are scary. They are. And so I was Diane Weiss' best friend watching at that time. And then when I got older and the kids were gone, Jason Robards has this kid who he just doesn't want to work, right? <laughs> so then I'm with him. And the last time I saw it, which was just about right before we talked, I was in the grandmother camp. It's like, is grandmother in the car? Is she even home? It's like, that's me. It's like this afterthought. It's like, I've seen the movie four times and I've been four different age groups. And this movie resonates with four different age groups. That's amazing. I I never had that experience before in a movie. And I don't think I'll have it again because it's a little late in the game. But parenthood is for everybody, I think. So dad, you're a longtime fan of both Steve Martin and Ron Howard. Why don't you give us a little background on each of them coming into this movie? Well, I watched Steve Martin uh, as he started in his comedy routine because he used to be a writer with Rob Reiner, actually, and uh, Bob Einstein on the Smothers Brothers. And he did bit parts on the Smothers Brothers. And so I followed him through Saturday Night Live. And then he made the transition to movies and seeing the jerk directed by Carl Reiner. So this was about his third or fourth movie Uh, for Ron Howard. I watched him go from child star on Andy Griffith up through to Happy Days. Watch that through. He leaves Happy Days, goes into directing Splash, Night Call, which uh, was Michael Keaton. You sure that's the right name? I I thought it was Night Call. Night Shift. Night Night Shift. Shift. Excuse me. Yep, Night Shift. And so I followed his career. So when this movie came out, it was December. I saw it in December of 1989. I was dirt poor. 
just out of law school, and my wife was working for a department store as a area manager. And about six weeks before we saw the movie, we find out she's pregnant. With yours truly. Yes. So going to see this, I walked out of the theater and I about had a come apart because I'm like, oh my God, I didn't think it was going to be this much work. That is so funny. And I'm sh- not sure I know what I'm going to be doing. I, I, I'm like, I, am I going to like blow this? I mean, I, because I mean, I the, the studio is named after my dad. Okay. And I've come to, to terms with the fact that he had an, a really shitty childhood. And so he had difficulty being a father and he, he did some things just very well, but it was not like I was going to go, I'm going to be just like him and be great at it. He was not Howard Cunningham. Okay. And so I was like, Oh my God, am I, what do I do? And so. What a timing thing for you. That is so funny. Yes. And in fact, my, I think it was my mother-in-law who made a comment to us both when we were like panicking was, well, he doesn't know you don't know what you're doing. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, he's going to think you're great no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> Until he meets other kids. <laughs> so that's my background with this movie and with the, the two principles in this movie is this was a long time coming for me. I mean, I grew up watching television and uh, staying up late, sneaking around the corner of my... Uh, parents' living room and laying juxtaposed so that I could see the TV, but they couldn't see me. Wow. I could stay up until nine o'clock watching TV when I was supposed to be in bed for. I used to do that on the top stair and my eyeballs would come down like a, like a spider. So I could, I guess every kid figures out a way to stay up. So normally I would open this question to the whole audience, but for the expedience of time, I will save that just slightly. The normal question would be, what is this movie about? But I'm going to preempt that a little bit because I think that you get exactly what this movie is about from one line of dialogue. You need a license to catch a fish, but they'll let any butt-reaming asshole be a father. (laughs) He delivered that line. Oh, did he deliver that line? Yes, it's the best line of the film. I don't know. There, there are a couple that are up there for competition for me, but I'm like, yeah, that summarizes the whole thing right there. Yeah, it really yeah. did. So for, again, the expedience of time, Dad, do you want to give us some background on this with your plot summary, please? I will. Uptight perfectionist Gil Buckman, Steve Martin, faces the undaunting task of raising three young children. When the children's flaws and problems become evident, Gil struggles to further deal with them, as well as his own feelings of being an inadequate parent. Gil's family only adds to his stress. He has a poor example of a father, Jason Robarts, a sister, Diane Weiss, facing difficulty with her teenage daughter, Martha Plimpton, and son, Joaquin Phoenix, and another sister, Harley Jane Kozak, who clashes with her husband, Rick Moranis, over parenting style and having more children. Gil's immature brother, Tom Hulse, also turns up with a young son who seems more mature than his father. On the roller coaster of life, will these parents make it to the end of the ride? 
Thank you. Cast for this movie, Ron Howard as director, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel as writers, Steve Martin as Gilbert Gill Buckman, Diane Wiest as Helen Buckman, Mary Steenburgen as Karen Buckman, Jason Robards as Francis Frank Buckman, Rick Moranis as Nathan Huffner, Tom Hulse as Lawrence Larry Buckman, Martha Plimpton as Julia Julie Buckman Higgins, Keanu Reeves as Todd Higgins, Harley Jane Kozak as Susan Huffner, Nee Buckman, Eileen Ryan as Marilyn Buckman, Joaquin Phoenix as Gareth Gary Buckman Lampkin, Helen Shaw as Grandma, and Jason Fisher as Kevin Buckman. Recognition for this movie? Parenthood was released on August 2nd, 1989. The film opened at number one in its opening weekend, earning $10 million. It eventually grossed over $100 million domestically and $126 million worldwide. Parenthood garnered two Academy Award nominations for Best Supporting Actress for Diane Wiest and Original Song for Randy Newman. It was also a nominee by the American Film Institute for their 100 Years 100 Laughs series. The movie's central premise has twice been adapted into TV series with one first in 1990 that went for one season on CBS and a second series in 2010 that ran for six seasons on NBC. Parenthood currently holds a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 82 score on Metacritic, and a 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? This movie is based on Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Lowell Gans, and Babalu Mandel's experiences as parents. Did you know? Martha Plimpton plays the older sister of Joaquin Phoenix, a.k.a. Leaf Phoenix, but in real life she dated his older brother, River Phoenix, for nearly five years. Did you know? According to Ron Howard in an interview, the scene where Helen discovers the nude pictures was actually an incident that happened to producer Brian Grazer. Did you know? In this film, Steve Martin plays the father of several children. In reality, Steve Martin did not become a parent until he was 67 years old in 2012. Did you know? Joaquin Phoenix, still being credited as Leaf Phoenix at this time, was homeless just a short time before he appeared in this movie. His family also belonged to a cult called the Children of God in the 1970s for a while. It was somewhere during this time they all changed their surname from Bottom to Phoenix. Hmm. Did you know? In the scene where Gil and Karen are going to Kevin's school to speak to the school principal, the school is Gerald Paris Elementary School, named as an homage to Jerry Paris, who directed 42 episodes of Happy Days. Of course, Ron Howard knew this since he worked with him during the run of Happy Days. Clint Howard, Ron's brother who appears in the film and also appeared in Happy Days, also worked with Paris, as did much of the crew and some of the supporting cast, which Howard cultivated from his TV years on Happy Days and Andy Griffith as well. Jerry Paris was also Jerry, the helper, the neighbor on the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh my God, really? <laughs> did you know? Grandma, Helen Shaw, inhales the helium balloon and says that when she was born, Grover Cleveland was president. Shaw was in fact born on July 25th, 1897, just four months and three weeks after the end of Cleveland's second term. Wow. With that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be heading back to the world of Stephen King for the second time with Misery from 1990, 
directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, starring Kathy Bates, James Kahn, and Lauren Bacall. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, let's go to best performance. Dad, who do you have down? Steve Martin. He had the most uh, heavy lifting, and uh, he did a very good job of going between appearing confident and being a bumbling uh, pile of goo. And uh, I thought his overall performance, he was likable, uh, he was affable, and... um, you were rooting for him throughout. So I actually thought that there's a fairly even distribution among all of the characters. Yes, Steve Martin is the lead and probably the headliner of this movie, but you get a lot of screen time with every single character that's in this movie. And so for me, and one of the things I'm definitely going to bring back up once we get to the scoring, is that I think the tone and the way they interspliced or interwove all of the stories is really the precursor for what modern single camera family sitcoms are like in a present era. I would liken this to being the precursor to what modern family became. And so by extension, my best performance is Ron Howard because you have to balance what's really a dark family drama with a lot of comedy and somehow come out the other side. I was surprised. This is the first time I've seen the movie. How actually funny this still is. I know that I find things that from the early 90s or the late 80s still funny, but I was not sure what to expect going into this. And from some of the descriptions, I thought it'd be a lot more dramatic. This was mixing a lot of lightheartedness with some pretty difficult material to kind of go through. I mean, one kid has a psychological disorder. You have another kid who's trying to learn about his sexuality while his father is completely absent. You have one with a huge gambling problem who leaves his illegitimate son on his grandfather's doorstep. And all the while, how this movie starts is striking in itself because you have Steve Martin's character as a young boy psychoanalyzing his past through this... I don't know, scene or mechanism inside of his own head as he's remembering what happened to him as a kid. And then that becomes the defining relationship by which almost all of the other kids have their relationships with Jason Robards as well through the film. So it was a very difficult balance to strike. And even though I think one of my meta commentaries on this is that it's like watching four episodes of TV inside of two hours and they just called it a movie, that's still something that should be lauded. And given what Ron Howard's career has been, and he's had some very up and down moments, for him to pass off two previous box office bombs right before this and kind of roar back with this, I thought should be the example that I would go for in uh, best performance for me. Beth, what do you think? I will say that I did love all the characters and I I love the casting director did a great job. And Steve Martin spent an awful lot of time with those children, playing with them, visiting with them. And the way he bounces off the older boy, like when the older boy is watching Cowboy Bob and he's got this look of wonder and made me cry. He made those kids capture their reaction 
a childlike reaction. He, he, and it took him a long time to get their trust and to get that to happen. You know, most people don't want to be in scenes with um, children or dogs. You know what I mean? They just don't. And he embraced the fact that he was going to be outplayed in every scene if he got those kids to do what they were supposed to do. And it was so to me, he was generous. And the cowboy Bob was just it, it was a wonder. And then the catching when he ca- caught the ball. And that, that is a thing that happens. Like everybody has a kid who can't hit the ball who can't catch the ball. It's like, you don't think you're going to get that kid, but you do. And and it's just excruciating to watch, to go through it. It's horrible. And so, you know, when he did catch the ball and that dance that he did was so, I, I was like that. Your heart is on your sleeve. It's so horrible to have children because you're like, when they drive in the car for the first time, you put, want to put your body on the car so that the other car will hit your body and not your child. It's it's so abnormal to have a child. It's so, it's just, and he really did capture, they all did, just how intense it is. But he was, oh my God, to me, masterful. So I have to give it to him. Cowboy Bob, I think is my favorite character. Secondary performance. Dad, you and I love Jason Robards when he was in All the President's Men. Yes. This just completely reminds me exactly why He has an ineffable quality about him that can be vulnerable, yet he's very much a stern father figure that you pay attention every time he speaks. And the emotional journey he goes through during the course of this movie to get from point A to point B, that he's a terrible father and he has to go to his own son for advice, but even then he's still doling out words of wisdom, I just think is amazing quality work by a truly professional actor. I I agree. I had him as my best secondary as well. And the fact that part of the movie is, is that even as a parent, you can continue to grow in the role because he embraced raising his grandson. And it was like, hey, you know, I've screwed up everything else. Maybe this time I'll get it right. But I do have to say that I have Diane Weiss uh, close second on this. She did a phenomenal job. I think this was probably the first film I'd ever seen her really in or paid attention to her. And she had all the range of emotions. As part of my previous life, I was I did some divorce work. And she reminded me of so many women who their husbands abandoned them for another woman. And the emotion, because it, it not only it raises self-doubt, about you and your and questions your own ability to be to have levels of self-worth and she brings that out throughout this so she's trying to parent as she's having facing her own insecurities as a result of her failed marriage and i think she did a phenomenal job that way as well i do think this might be one of her first movies if not her first movie and interesting enough she and mary steenburgen are actually best friends and have been since they came to Hollywood together. They actually were waitresses trying to make their way in, and this is one of their first, both of them, their first movies. So to be able to actually do it together was uh, an amazing treat for them. That's a good good little nugget right there. I did not know that. So let's go to you, Beth. Who did you have as your secondary performer? You guys changed my mind. 
I, I, I did see Jason Robards on Broadway. So that was amazing. And I, I expect excellence from him. So I discounted him because I just, and that's wrong. And my favorite moment for him in this movie, because I was kind of an insecure kid. My mother uh, was angry at me because she was violently ill the entire time throwing up. She said I was a, a very, um, a very horrible fetus. It's like I, I had no hope. There was no hope for me. You know what I mean? So it was like, uh, it's not a great relationship. She wouldn't feed me. She didn't want to look at me. She was, she was, she never really got over uh, what a terrible fetus I was. So when I saw that boy, you know, with Jason Robards and my favorite line in the movie was, so do you want to stay here? Okay. He doesn't say to the kid, oh, it'll make your grandmother so happy if you stay. There's no pressure on the kid to be great. Because that's how you feel when you're kind of like thrown around a little bit. You feel like, oh man, if they're expecting me to be wonderful or to save the day or to make them happy, I can't take the pressure. But all he said to that kid was, you want to stay? And the kid said, yes. And he said, fine. I was like, that was the best line I've ever heard. Because he's just walking in the door. You don't have to do anything. I loved that. It made me cry. Like that was the moment I cried in the movie. But to say, was Jason Robards great? I these water walker people where you just, you don't even appreciate them because they're so great. So I appreciate your, your telling me that because actually he was wonderful. You made me think and I appreciate it. Most charismatic. I had down Steve Martin. I think both of you have made fairly good cases as to why he was the star attraction of this movie, but he just has a physical humor that I don't think anybody else can really match. There's a presence about how he controls and contorts his face in order to be appealing and yet never feels like it's too silly or too goofy for you to be out of the movie. And so because of that, I think he carries large portions or huge scenes in this movie. You talked about the Little League game or the Cowboy Gill scene. I do think that that is part of the endearing quality of this movie. So he gets my most charismatic. Beth, who'd you have? It really was great casting. And um, I also went through a little period of bulimia. Okay. I'm, I'm so old. I don't even care what people think anymore. So that beautiful Harley person, when she ate her Twinkie and she was hiding food and she was so gorgeous and he was so like lucky you know what I mean? And she she was in the kitchen with Mary Steenburgen talking about how, oh, my God, it just turns me on so much. It's like, and he's not going on his knees. I am so grateful that you even look at me. And she's all worried about herself. And then she goes into the closet and eats the wonderful, I think it was a Twinkie. It was, you know, what it was what Fab Five. It was one of those fabulous little things in cellophane. And I just, I watched her the whole time. And she's so pretty and she doesn't know it and everybody doesn't like it about her. And I don't know what happened to her as an actress. I was expecting a lot from her because she had good timing, comic timing. She was incredibly beautiful, but not unlikable, which is really hard for a woman to do. Like I usually hate beautiful women because that's my job, but she was so likable. So I don't know what I should look up what happened to her. So um, anyway, I'm giving it to her and I'm probably the only one. Dad. Who'd you have? I have Keanu Reeves. Ooh. I mean, you can see right there. He has a certain 
self-effacing ability, even when he was in the, in, um, the Matrix, you could tell that he never completely takes himself as an actor and a person, and it comes across in his acting, is he's not, he doesn't believe himself so serious. There's just something that's a vulnerability in his character and everything he does that I have never seen another actor quite portray. He has a way of making fun of himself, even in the most demanding, uh, serious parts, that gives a certain air of vulnerability that makes you like him. Hmm. Very good. I've just always thought of Keanu Reeves as another Nicolas Cage without all of the bankruptcies and better film choices. <laughs> I don't know. I, every time I see him and everything I read about him as a person, I just think he's a really good guy. He has given so much money away. He is so generous. He's done so many wonderful things without putting his name on it that he really is he really is that guy. He really does stop and help you with your flat tire. He really does. Like he brought sandwiches and every day with the film crew on a movie with no money. He didn't make a whole bunch of money, but he made enough money to take everybody out to lunch every day. And, and he didn't end up with any money at the end of the movie. There is something decent about him. I think you're right. All I care about is seeing John Wick 4. Well, he says he makes so much money off of those movies that he could just live on that alone and never have to worry pretty much let's go to best scene i have nominated birthday baseball game my son cool cowboy gill slapping the salami flashcards i'm not gill roadhead frank asks gill for advice and roller coaster of life do you need me to explain any of those, or did I miss any? No, I had another name for slapping the salami, but... That has a lot more to that scene, but it's also incredibly funny. Yes. All right, so then what is the best scene, Dad? Actually, I think it's the scene between Gil and his father, the interplay between Steve Martin and uh, Jason Robards, because I think both at that point in time come to a certain acceptance that they know they're both flawed as individuals and they finally kind of come to the point where they okay i know that there were mistakes but at this point we're mature men we're sharing this moment and we can move on and kind of have a different relationship the fact that robarts in the film comes and asks his son for advice shows that he recognizes that he is a good person, a good father. And I think that that kind of builds or instills a level of confidence in Gil um, that he did not have up until that point. So I think that that interplay, there are a lot of those moments between fathers and sons where those events take place, then I think this kind of exemplifies those moments. I think realistically, you could say that most of these scenes could be the best scene for any one particular character. Cowboy Gill might be Steve Martin's best scene. Roadhead might be Mary Steenburgen's best scene. Flashcards is clearly 
Rick Moranis's and his wife's best scene, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on her name, slapping the salami is uh, Keanu's best scene. And so for all of these, I think you could individually say one of them stands out. I would have to go with you. It's also my most indelible moment is him asking for advice because I think there's a vulnerability between the two of them that I don't think you get from ordinary actors if you don't place extraordinary ones into that scene. Steve Martin, knowing that he has to be somewhat of a hard ass, he's lived his entire life from the standpoint, I don't want to be my father in any way, shape, or form. And yet his father, he gets the ultimate one-upsmanship. His father is coming to him for advice about parenting. When can anyone ever say that? And he recognizes it, and he basically gets on his knees and grovels. And yet he doesn't slam it back in his face in the way that I think most of us would like to if we had a shitty dad. So I think that does probably take as far as seriousness, level of quality, the acting job, the cake for me. But I think individually you could say any one of these would be the best scene for a particular actor or character. Beth, what do you have? That is so sweet. I'm just thinking about the two of you and Steve Martin talked about that scene and he had a very contentious relationship with his father. His father was very embarrassed when he was wearing the balloons and he wrote this play called um, Picasso at the Picasso at the Lampine. I can't speak French, but anyway, to impress his father and he never did. And it reminds me of the Jane Fonda scene with her father on Golden Pond when she's begging him to listen. But he said that that scene was really, really hard for him because he never, ever, his father said about the play, well, it was better. That's what his father was like. And it was really hard for him to do that scene and it didn't happen quickly. And I think you have to be a man to relate to that. And I love that. It's like I was in the movie theater seeing a field of dreams with all these men and they all broke into hysterics. I'm like, it was like being at a, like watching a soap opera with my grandmother. It was like unbelievable. And it was a man thing. And I think it's so wonderful when there are moments for men because women have thousands of them. And it's just warming my heart that I hadn't valued that scene like I should have because I valued the Jane Fonda one because I'm a woman. I didn't see it the way you both saw it until you are talking. And so this is what's great about your podcast. Twice I came like the pro from Dover with this movie and you're screwing me around. It's like, I'm like, okay, you're right. That was the best scene. I'm sorry. I have three other ones that I couldn't choose from. And yeah, you're both compelling. So this is a good podcast. Just want you to know that. Well, thanks. So for favorite scene for me, I went with slapping the salami. It was the part that made me laugh the hardest during the whole course of the movie. But it's also the one where we come up with the line that I said the movie was about. And for me, poignancy always ranks highly as far as favorite scenes. So for those reasons, that's where I'm going. Dad? I I did the same. And quite frankly, I remember the day when you were turned about 10 and uh, we're soon to be 11. And I used to say the grossest thing on the face of the earth is an 11-year-old boy followed only closely by an 11-year-old girl. Because you have all the functions of an adult, 
uh, flatulation, the belching, the body odors, but you don't care about the other sex right then. So you don't care. You just let it go. And you think everything is funny. And, and your mother argued with me. And I said, remember sitting at the dining room table and I said, oh, really? Because even innocuous words will make a 11-year-old boy laugh. And I just looked at you and went, booby. And you busted out, almost fell out of your chair. And she's like, okay. And I said, well, Chris, at some point in time, you have to understand that when the door is closed in our son's bedroom, don't go in. You will regret it. She has, and she did. <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Yes, I, I've seen her embarrassed before, but that was one of the moments where I have never seen her as red. I mean, she clearly was Wisconsin Badger Cardinal Red. Oh, my God. Oh, growing up is so hard. But you're right. That, that year is such a horrible year. It's your body is, you, I, I just was so happy being a kid. I wanted nothing to do with all that change. Yeah. And then of course it's followed right after that by being 12 and 13 in junior high, which quite frankly is the equivalent of living in a toilet bowl. <laughs> I mean, it really, Joaquin did a wonderful job of just the shame of even walking and thinking everyone's looking at you just, Oh, yeah. And, you know, I just I tell people and they hate the title. They I, I, I guess it's a there's something wrong with the title. People don't. It doesn't say night shift. It doesn't say the producers. It People they're like Parenthood. I'm not watching that. I can't get my friends to watch it and they would love it. And an 11 year old girl is just as bad. She just thinks she's better than an 11 year old boy. She just has to believe that you guys are like on the same page with a bunch of this. It's somewhat of a problem at times. No, it's not. Well, you you give me different reasons for why. If you gave me the same reason for why, I'd be bored. But you have the same take, but uh, generational, very different reasons for having it. So no, it's good. But it is. I'm I'm a follower. So and I have no self esteem. So I'm like changing everything. <laughs> like when you guys gang up on me, I'm done. <laughs> it's just. So what now? What are we gonna do now? Well, this is an interesting experiment when we get to the scoring then. So I gave my most indelible as being the uh, Franken-Gill scene. But Beth, what do you think is the most indelible moment of this movie? Now, you you guys have this Bowman thing, right? At the end, we're going to talk about this Bowman thing. I have to tell you, I know I'm gullible. I want to cry. <laughs> I, I pay my money. I want to be entertained, Okay. And I do fall into these traps that are so obvious. My husband is like, I, I can't stand you. You know, so I have to say at the end, when the baby is the Bowman baby, I was like, oh, it did. So it kind of wrapped it up into, oh, my God, life is so gorgeous and lovable. And, and I know you guys were sitting there going, oh. and so that's what it was. No, he was. I have my own take, and I'll okay. address it, because it makes perfect sense to me. Okay, it did? Because to me, yes. it feels like they skipped from episode four of the first season to, like, the season four series finale, all in the moment of, like, ten seconds. No. It was tacked on. You thought it was, like, just hugely tacked on? Okay. Yeah. 
No, there's I, a reason why. That. It was tacked on, but there's a yeah. reason why. I could see, we'll say that a lot of people weren't going, oh, like I was. I think, yeah, I, I think, I can't remember who I was with, but I was with people who didn't appreciate it. I thought it was adorable. And and it did make me get up out of my chair in a fabulous mood. And I just kind of on air walked out of the theater. It gave me a buzz. Now I'm, I'm trying to be ashamed of it, but I still can't manage it. So <laughs> just going to be proud. So dad, enlighten me. What? Why is it in there? It's for the same reason that you mentioned that Steve Martin wasn't a father until he was 67 years old. It's to show that parenting or parenthood happens to people, whether they plan it, they don't plan it. It happens at all stages of life. And even when you think you're fairly settled and things go forward, it happens to you. And they already had the unwanted or un planned pregnancy of Steve Martin and Mary Steedenburgen, they have to go one step further and show that a couple can meet in their late middle age and still end up parents. And it's showing the, the broadness. Part of this film is to show families and parenting in a different light. It's not the typical nuclear family that we grew up with with 60s and 70s sitcoms. There's no Carol Brady in this. June Cleaver? Yes. Nobody running around wearing pearls while they're cooking dinner, all right? So they have to go one step further. I mean, just the sheer fact, and I'll mention this when we talk about doing the rubric, the fact that you have a person of color as one of the children was an advance in stuff because... I was in 1989, and that was not necessarily looked upon the most favorably by a large portion of uh, society. But then they undercut it by naming the kid Cool. Isn't that like a bridge too far? Yeah. Well. Tom Holtz was, oh my God, he was so good at being a jerk. Oh my God. Yeah. terrible. Yeah. Trying to sell his dad's car. And so you, you think this idiot is going to name his kid cool and he's going to have to go through his life. That's worse than being called Sue. Yeah, that was terrible. I don't know. My name is spelled Thomas, but I occasionally go by Jeff. Why? I used to do that to substitute teachers. They, it's pronounced Jeff just to screw with them. <laughs> My son used to put when it said religious, he would put Druid. He did the, He did these crazy things all the time. Just, just hated them. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I think that's. A, I think, I think that my kids would love you. You are nuts. <laughs> well, I got. I finally had to stop because my wife was complaining. They'd ask on the form sex, and I'd put okay when. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean that you pronounce Thomas Jeff is hysterical. She knew exactly. She was like, this is going to be a long semester. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> Dad, most indelible. I, I guess it's uh, Gary the Salami. Uh, I I called it Gary and his boner. But uh, that whole scene to me is uh, just, that. that's always going to be the scene. It's always going to be the line from Keanu that I remember. 
uh, more because I actually have quoted it in other contexts. I think actually, I think I even used it in a closing argument once in a uh, parental termination case that I had handled years ago. Basically saying that people try to sometimes do the best they can. But anyway, so that's where I am with that. All right. So that takes us to our second break. We will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. We have uh, David A. Arnold, 54, American comedian, uh, actor, writer, Fuller House, That Girl Lele, and two Netflix specials. So specifically, he was a stand-up comedian. He was a primary writer on the, I guess, how, how would you call it, a reboot? It's not exactly a reboot, but uh, the sequel TV version of Fuller House that was on Netflix. And then he created the Netflix show That Girl Lele. Uh, unfortunately, passed away last week. I can't remember of what, but uh, a lot of mourning online for his particular passing. We also lost Bernard Shaw, who uh, was an American journalist and news anchor at CNN. I remember Bernard Shaw doing the news during the first Gulf War. Very classy individual. I think one of the big stories that I saw as a commentary in his last days was that he kept telling people how much he regretted that he was the first major anchor on CNN because it took so much time away from his family. And so I guess I'll share some words of wisdom from Twitter, and I know that's normally a, a mistake, but nobody ever complains about not working enough in their life on their deathbed. You're right. We also lost Gail S. Maffeo, 81, American television producer, did Head of the Class, Soul Man, and Home Improvement. She's another one of these faces that we seemingly have on a weekly basis that if you were to see her, I'm sure you might recognize her, given the fact that she was in countless TV shows and long-running series, going back to, I think, even the 50s. And so she's been involved in a lot of things for a long time. Obviously, uh, somebody that uh, I think most of us have some sort of connection to with one of her characters over many years. Jack King, 90, American actor was uh, known for the 18, the 11th hour, and in the film High Plains Drifter. He was also in a couple of other Clint Eastwood films as kind of the heavy and somewhat of the antagonist, such as Hang 'em High, but he was also a recurring villain on the A-Team. So if you were a fan of old Clint Eastwood westerns or the A-Team series during the 80s, you'd recognize this guy. Uh, we also lost Marsha Hunt, 104. American actress was in Pride and Prejudice, Blossoms in the Dust, and The Human Comedy. I think she might be one of the few remaining people that had been alive that was affected in Hollywood by the Red Scare. Part of the major piece of her obituary was how she, despite not having any communist ties, the fact that she irked a lot of the Hollywood conservatives at the Screen Actors Guild at the time. She came in and was part of the board. 
apparently got her on this list and she went from one day being a huge contract player to having absolutely no work to do uh, within the span of a few weeks. Unfortunately, uh, that happened a lot, including who we talked about earlier, Zero Mostel. Lastly, Jean-Luc Godard, 91, was a French director. was credited being with one of the most influential directors of his, of his generation. I'm going to give the, the English version of these so that I don't butcher the French. But he did Breathless, The Little Soldier, and Contempt. So he was known primarily as the father of French New Wave cinema, which brought a new perspective during the 60s, broke out with that film that Dana referenced earlier as Breathless. And I will try my hand at the pronunciation. A bout de souffle, whether I got that right or not, you can comment on your own. I will take your emails at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. But obviously a, an incredibly influential director. I think one of his biggest influences is non-narrative or non-linear film structure. I think he's credited primarily as saying that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. And so he has influenced everybody from Martin Scorsese all the way up to Quentin Tarantino, clearly, because Quentin Tarantino I don't think has met a linear timeline he likes in a movie. And so we remember him here for his towering achievement, as well as all of those that we've mentioned previously with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. My first one up, Todd, you know, Mrs. Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog or drive a car. Hell, you need a license to catch a fish, but they'll let any butt reaming asshole be your father. That's my best Keanu. I I, I can't do better. <laughs> Go ahead, Dad. Julie, he said that he loved me. Helen, men say that. They all say that. Then they come. Okay, well, there's this uh, scene in the movie where um, Mary Steenburgen has talked to her sister-in-law about how she's relieved stress for Rick Moranis when he gets, um, you know, when he doesn't get the job he wants. This act of love, we could say, happens. Mary figures it would be a great idea to do it while he's driving because it works for Rick Moranis so well. She does this to her husband, and um, he has an accident. And so the, the cop comes over to the car, and Steve goes, just show him, honey. It's like, I mean, in a girl world, that was a funny line. And, of course, there's also the balloon thing where – it's your lower intestines. That one was kind of a funny scene. Um, I was with a bunch of girls when we saw that movie, and we kind of fell out of our chair with that one. So, and especially Mary Steen's virgin doesn't seem like the type of person who would ever do anything really fun <laughs> for someone. So it was, it was kind of great. So yeah, Grandma, you know when I was nineteen, Grandpa took me on a roller coaster, Gil. Oh, Grandma, up, down, up, down. Oh, what a ride. What a great story. I always wanted to go again. You know, it was just so interesting to me that a ride could make me so frightened, so scared, so sick, so excited, and so thrilled all together. 
Some didn't like it. They went on the merry-go-round. That just goes around. Nothing. I like the roller coaster. You get more out of it. Larry Buckman, after rolling from a moving car, standing up and brushing himself off. Hi, Dad. Dinner ready? Frank. What was that? Larry. Huh? Oh, some friends just dropping me off. Frank. Friends? Friends slow down. They even stop. That was a good one. Do you really have to go? My whole life is have to. Helen, open this door, goddammit. I just want a little respect. Not a lot. Just a little. Do you know why I'm having sex with machines? Because your father went to have a party and stayed to raise two kids, and I have no life. (laughs) Frank on parenting. It's like your Aunt Edna's ass. It goes on forever, and it's just as frightening. Gil. That's true. Frank, there is no end zone. You never cross the goal line. Spike the ball and do your touchdown dance. Never. Kevin, when you're sliding into first and you're feeling something burst, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sliding into third and you feel a juicy turd, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sliding into home and your pants are full of foam, diarrhea. Diarrhea. When you're driving in your Chevy and the pants are feeling heavy. Diarrhea. Diarrhea. Kevin, honey, where did you learn that song? Uh, last summer in camp. Ah, that was money well spent. <laughs> Julie, I can't do this. This is too intense. Helen, this is marriage. My last one. Frank. Gil, you have a good memory. Uh, was it yours or Helen's or Susan's wedding I got drunk at? It was all three, Dad. Congratulations. Well, which one did I punch the band leader? That was mine. We have photos. I'm having them blown up for the commitment hearings. (laughs) Gary, what is it with all the women in this family that makes all the men in this family want to leave? Joaquin, that was a good one. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. The industry still respects this. I I did some research, and the fact that it was on the the 100 laughs list, the critics still love it. It was nominated for that list. It was not on it. Okay, all right, excuse me, nominated. So I went for the industry with a 3.5. It's not ideal. It's not like everybody just raves about it, but it's still highly regarded. From the public, this is where I had a problem, which is you mention the film to people, and I just tried it to general people I ran ran into, and it's generally where they're going, like they're searching their mind for what it was, or have they seen it? And then you mention Steve Martin, 1989. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is not held up long term. Uh, I still think it's probably one of Ron Howard's best, which is why the industry likes it. But the public has kind of lost interest in it. So I went with a two for the public. That gives me a 5.5 for Legacy, unfortunately. I think, unfortunately, it's low for what the quality of the film is. So you and I are in much different places because I think the legacy of this is not necessarily in the movie itself, 
but what the influences it has becomes. Like I said, I think the legacy is mostly in TV. This gives birth to me to the single camera family comedy of the 2010s. And that's what most family sitcoms are these days. Even the family dramas are all single camera stuff. And this was not something that was being done in 89. You had a lot of the all in the families. You had full house. You had stuff that was multi-camera. It was all kind of staged out. And it's the way things had been done since the time of Dick Van Dyke. Now, earlier than Dick Van Dyke, it was done by Desi Arnaz. Fair enough. But even so, I think this gave a new perspective to how to do more melodramatic stuff, but with a comedic flair. You didn't have the high hijinks of what sitcoms were at that time. And as a result, I think not just from the movie itself, which I think gives it a a boost, but thinking about the progression of TV and TV sitcoms to what we have now, I think this is actually a five because I think it's more of an unheralded influence than it is anything else. I don't think people will directly point and say, oh yeah, Parenthood changed the game on TV and sitcoms because it's a movie. But I think if you really put the through lines through, I'm going to give it a five on that side of it. As for the industry, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think for the most part, if people know the film, either they were alive when it came out and kind of have a recollection of Steve Martin being in the thing, but it's not one of the movies that Steve Martin is famous for or Ron Howard is famous for. And if they know the name just uh, sight on scene, it's probably for the sitcom from the early 2010s. And so I just don't think that there's this clamoring for it. As was mentioned earlier, it's not a movie that is easily available or that people just put on for the sake of putting on, despite it being somewhat of a comedic movie. You would think that more people would probably watch this, but given its availability issues and the rest of it, I only had to go with a 2.5, so I'm at a 7.5 overall. Beth, what do you got? My angle on it is the screenwriters, if I'm allowed to do that. Babalu, Mandel, and Lowell Gans in the Writers Guild, this movie, they won an award. And it was a lifetime achievement, but they said, the the two of them and the writers, they called it an American Ibsen. It's very difficult to do as a writer what they did. And the actors make it look easy because they were all great actors. So to me, that was the genius of it. And the, the characters that they created, it was books and books on each one of these characters that no one ever saw. So if that could be allowed, I think that they, none of the words were changed. Not one word was changed in the movie. And you had, they were ad-libbers everywhere. And everybody said, no, this script is perfect. We're going to do the script. So I don't know if that's allowed, but I think the script made everyone look great. I think it deserves a five for that. I think the title is awful or something is wrong and people don't see it. And they never talk. Like if you talk about funny movies, it's never on a list of funny movies, not even Cowboy Bob. I don't know what it's like. It's invisible. It's the invisibility cloak is, is over it and it just disappeared. And I do believe you're right that it, it affected, there was even a show called Parenthood. It affected future television shows and how they operate and how they succeed. So I would say it got a two on the um, on the second one because no one no one even wants to see it. 
So I don't know what I can't add. You'll have to do that for me. That's a seven for you. You don't need help with the math, right? No, I got my calculator up. So that's a 6.67 average between the three of us. Impact Significance had a couple of Oscar nominations. This continued the Steve Martin run of the late 80s into the early 90s as he was somewhat of a movie star at that point, particularly for comedies. Was a number one film when it came out, promoted several members of the cast to go on to other bigger movies, and helped propel Ron Howard back from his two prior flops into the A-list director category again. So for me, I think it's a pretty easy 4.5 for the industry, even though it doesn't reach the highest of heights. This isn't like one of the most acclaimed, but I think it has enough stuff that surrounds it to boost it up to a 4.5. It's a 3.5 for the audience, though, for me, since this was a number one film and produced over $100 million at the box office, but I don't see that the audience did anything more than show up initially and then let the thing kind of just fade out. There was an initially planned TV series that was only 12 episodes, and they aborted it midway through its first season run. It just didn't have the legs, and I think to a certain degree, it was a little bit ahead of its time as to what TV was. People didn't understand where this category of film and single camera sitcom was going to go. It wasn't necessarily ready for it yet. And so by extension, I think the most I can give it as a number one film down is somewhere in the threes, but also I don't want to give it too much higher than that either. So I'll end at a 3.5. That's an eight overall for me. Industry, I had a four because of the Academy Award nominations and simply because so many of the um, critics really liked the film, gave it high marks. Uh, and I went with a four because the public did watch it. And this was a very popular film, both in the theaters and on VHS rentals at the time. It had legs that lasted within the first year where almost everybody, I think, at some point saw the film, or at least portions of the film. And it was discussed. It was one of the water cooler films where lines were quoted and performances discussed. Um, so I'm more than eight for the uh, impact and significance for total. I wonder because it, it was it was it was a big hit for the industry. It was a big hit when it came out, and it kind of was a, a sort of big hit with VHS because you kind of watched those movies with people. I really don't think it's holding up when you watch it alone. I think you need a crowd. So it was better in the movie theater. It really isn't doing any business right now. You can't even hardly find it. And I I do think it did start people on great careers. So I I guess I would give it a, but I I really think it's just going to die. It's dying already. It's gone. So um, I would say I give it maybe a five. So let's see here. That's a seven average between the three of us. Novelty. Again, I got to go back to the whole family sitcom and where we've been at up to this point, as far as the historical example, you both probably could tell me a lot better from your perspective as to what TV was at this point and how it may have changed or influenced that later on. I don't think it's in the immediate impact, but TV didn't seem to me to be very multi-generational 
at least more than like one or two. This has like three or four layers to it in a way that I don't remember too many other movies or sitcoms really blending that much of a different and non-nuclear family, as Dad pointed out earlier in the show. And it definitely wasn't interweaving stories where everybody was getting equal bill time as far as the rating and how things went along. Yes, again, Steve Martin was the headliner in this movie, but I really don't think he's in it all that much more than any of the people that had played his siblings. I think they all get their own equal parts of the movie. Tom Hulse has his scenes. Diane Weist has her scenes, etc., etc. And so from a dialogue standpoint, for the diversity of its characters, from a plot standpoint... I think this is a precursor to something like a modern family that was an obvious runaway hit. I don't think you can get to that TV series without having this as an example to eventually draw upon. This becomes the model of what TV could be because I really do feel if you look at it from where all the A and B block points of this are, even within the characters that are surrounding a particular sibling. The stuff that's going on with Kevin could be one or two episodes. The stuff that's going on between Todd and his wife and Gary, that's like two or three episodes to itself. So I really do feel this is like four sitcom episodes during the span of two hours that they just combined in order to make a movie. And it's seamless, but realistically, this could very easily be converted just as the script exists into a four episode series just the, the as the precursor to taking off from there, except you have to skip the Bowman scene and kind of tack that on to like season four again. So I'll make that point. But it's why I've wondered, despite his success in movies, why Ron Howard never really returned to TV in some form where he mostly grew up. He's got a good feel for tone, particularly with sitcoms. I think he could do a few of these well and create some shows that might be enduring, but for whatever reason, he's just kind of stayed in movies and he hasn't been particularly successful for a while now. So I end up at a nine. Beth, what do you got? Oh, I want to go last. Can I go last? I'm, sure. Now I'm, I'm all confused. I'm thinking, what are you going to, you go next. Go ahead. Dan. All right. I have novelty a little bit different. Okay. And I went at it from a different angle. This is one of the true first films that I have ever remember with this level of an ensemble cast. I mean, there were so many individuals that were on equal footing within this. And to that extent, this was derived from television. There were three pioneers in television that took the normal sitcom and converted it into an ensemble cast. Any guesses to who the three pioneers were? Gene Reynolds, who started an ensemble cast with Hogan's Heroes, and then really took it further with MASH. Norman Lear, who took All in the Family and made it into an ensemble. And then James L. Brooks, who started Taxi, then Cheers, and then Frasier. There are characters that are a little more important than others, but the total is greater than the sum of the parts. And so those three were very influential. And I can see their marks into the concept of this film, whether it was intentional or not. This seems to be an attempt to draw that type of thing into to film. 
And so while it's not completely novel, it's novel for film. And so that's why I went kind of on the high side, but gave it some points down because it's still a family drama and a family. So I went with a 7.5 on novelty because of the fact that it really took the true ensemble cast and made it into a film. All right, you're up. Okay. The novelty is we have to go back in time, like real back. And the fact that this story had a nice family and had a scene with a flashlight that wasn't a flashlight, that was never done in a movie with nice people at the time. There was no kid like Kevin in a movie where Kevin had problems, emotional problems. We never dealt with that. And that the dad was worried he was going to be a shooter on top of the tower. That was that was really big. There was no such thing as a nice family and a mom finding pictures of the daughter naked and handling it the way she did. And the paper bag with a nice boy who looked like that. It This movie said and did things in a way that was palatable for America to accept. So many times in this movie, you never, you know, a Diane Weist at that party and he like, you know, that nobody even knew people had those things back then. Dildos. That was not a thing. It was not discussed. It was, and then Diane Weist, the cutest person in the world. And then we still love her and mom and dad are there. It just broke so many barriers down. And I would say for novel, novelty, I would give it a nine because I remember how novel it was. I was old enough to, I'd never seen those things touched, especially by lovely people. So I, I would say it really did create a new avenue for families on sitcoms to be real, to be very, very real and still lovable. Now you can buy them in Walgreens. Or across the parking lot from Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Exactly. (laughs) Dad, classicness, your category. Well, I alluded to this earlier, which is the fact that we have a, uh, a child of color, and that was rather novel at the time. We talked about sex. We talked about boys having erections. And it did in a, in a fairly classy way. It wasn't dirty or whatever. And so there's nothing in this film. I mean, most of the female characters are well empowered. There's nothing that's horrible. You know, maybe a little bit more diversity would have been interesting. But for the time frame, the fact that they had something that was cutting edge. Overall, I have to say it's a nine because it did so much and did it well, and it's not cringeworthy. So, where do I start with this? I agree with all of your points, except there are at least two very glaring points in this movie that didn't sit well with me. One, for comedic effect, we are poking fun at a school shooter. In 2022... Twitter would have a field day. Like, this movie would be canceled faster than you could uh, snap your fingers. Two, there's child pornography in the first, like, ten minutes of the film. I knew you were going to bring that one up. (laughs) 
How does this film get away with that? <laughs> like, seriously. So, a- as good as all of those points are, and yes, this is incredibly novel and all of, all of the stuff, and I really don't think from the wholesome part of America that they're going to care about that, but gosh, that just, especially the school shooter one, I'm like, why is this in here? This makes no sense. This could have been easily edited out. Why Why is it still in here? It was an opportunity for Rance Howard to be in the film. I, I sit at an eight reluctantly because this could be so much higher if they just did some quick selective editing. Well, they could have just turned the camera up to waist level on the little kid. Yeah, no, I understand. Beth? This is the time it was. Halloween was ruined for everyone because somebody put razor blades in an apple. It was a very innocent time as far as knowledge of terrible things. So everybody's like, well, Halloween's over. And that school shooter was a one-off and it was just terrifying. And you saw the mother on screen and she looked pretty nice. And I do think we all worried very much that our kids had to turn out right. That resonated with me just because it just didn't seem possible because he was an engineer. It's like, it just didn't, it, it was like the first almost normal looking person that shot like that. And we didn't know where to put it in our brains and it wasn't like there were books written. So yeah, we were all, we were scared that if everything didn't go perfectly, you could end up like Charles Whitman, who the week before he was at his grandmother's house having dinner, baking pies. It just, so it was kind of a mind blower, I, I will say. And of course it doesn't resonate today, but at the time it didn't seem tacked on. It seemed like, yeah, we were worried about stuff like that. It, you know, Apgar, like Merle Streep talked about Apgar being an apple juice. We, nobody bought apple juice. We were so innocent. We Now there are so many things that have gone wrong that you're like, I'm not gonna believe that, I'm gonna believe this. I could see them taking it out today, but it, it didn't, it didn't upset anybody in the movie. We kind of, we kind of deep down all were worried about things like that. So you have to really, it's hard to go back in time and, and understand, you know, like movies. Well, but it's in relation to how you see the movie today. And that's yeah. what I'm saying is, is we're not going back to 1989 and saying re-edit this film for an 1989 audience. We're saying how does this strike a 2022 audience? And I think that a 2022 audience, if this is seeing it for the first time, would probably at least pick out those two moments, if not more. Yeah, probably. And, you know, even like in your little life, you can review movies that you saw when you were a teenager or 14 and there are inappropriate things. It's We're just evolving so quickly and we're getting so woke. It's It's hard. But... Yeah, I don't think it would hurt at all. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it would hurt at all today to take that out. So what's your score? I give it a five. Okay. Wasn't the Bell Tower shooter at Texas A&M? I thought it was just Uh, Texas. UT. UT? University of Texas, yeah. Okay. I knew it was in Texas, but I thought it was at A&M. But okay, Texas. All right. Well, yeah. It was terrifying, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't this the first, like, school shooting? The first, like, picking off people from up above? I, I think yeah. it might have been the first time that we ever saw that. And so the whole country was done in by it. 
really. But but yeah, you could take it out today. So that's a 7.33 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. Beth, we usually give this to our guests who selected the movie. What do you think? Well, Thomas, who goes by Jeff, I would say a 10 because I watch it every single time. I'm a different generation, a different 10 year period, and I'm seeing a different movie. And I don't know of one other movie that resonates with me like that. So I'm giving it a 10. I think I'm going to go with an eight here on this one. I found this mostly charming and surprisingly pretty funny. So it was enjoyable for watching it the first time. I think I'd probably get more out of it the second time, but this is something I could see myself rewatching. The problem is, is just where is it going to be on? And if Mm -hmm. I have to rent it again, I'm not sure the entry point for me to be able to see it is as high as some other movies that are just always on Netflix or prime or whatever else. Exactly. Dad. It's a film that I not only would rewatch and would like to watch again, it's actually a film that I would like to sit and watch. I mean, this is a film that I could see us as a family putting on while we're, you know, celebrating a holiday and we're kind of bored and nobody can agree on anything because it's light enough and it's a comedy. So it's not going to bother everybody in the family, which for good or bad, our family has a little bit divergent of interests. (laughs) So I went with an 8.5. You don't need help with the math, do you? If you'd like to give some. It was an 8, an 8.5, and a 9? 10. A 10. All right. Are you good with decimals, Pop? Well, I like decimals. They Not as much as I like commas, because I like to see a lot of commas when I'm looking at my bank account. So that's an 8.83 average between the three of us. Audience score, we had a 79% for Google users and a 76% for Rotten Tomato users. For a 7.75 overall. So to repeat the categories, that's a 6.67 for Legacy, 7 for Impact Significance, 8.5 for Novelty, 7.33 for Classicness, 8.83 for Rewatchability, and a 7.75 for Audience, giving us a final total of 46.08. And currently placing it on our list... Between Rio Bravo and Roman Holiday. <gasps> oh, Roman Holiday. To just be mentioned in the same sentence. Oh my God, that was a great movie. All right, remaining questions. Does Gil have the same anxiety issues as Kevin? I think the film goes a long way to imply it and clearly state that he was undiagnosed. But what do you think? Probably. Do you think his father, do you think Jason Robards has the same problem and he drinks it away? See, that might even be a better question because I think part of his backstory or reasoning motivation was he says to Gil at one point during the film, I didn't want to be so worried about you as a kid. So that's an interesting thought. I guess I hadn't considered it, but that might even be a better question. Yeah. Why did we need to show Horn in the Ken Bowman story at the end? We already discussed. And does this movie handle childhood psychology well? Such a sticky wicket. I don't know if we handle child psychology well now. 
Yeah. Thank you, Dana. Yeah. I mean, or being somebody professionally who deals with psychologists on a daily basis and child psychologists on an almost daily basis, I don't know. There's still a stigma. There's still a stigma with mental health in general. And there's issues. I mean, a lot of people have had issues with mental health. And uh, I think we just kind of downplay it too much because it's perceived as being a weakness. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking with your talking, he'll outgrow it. So think about this. Just for the first moment, I thought of this. Maybe they don't outgrow it. They learn to hide it. You see what I mean? Like, oh, he'll outgrow it. And then you've got this kid and he's a teenager and he doesn't do it anymore. Maybe his body and all of his emotions have hit it because, and that's not outgrowing anything, but that's the dream is you don't put your kid in therapy. You might outgrow it. Well, they, they don't outgrow it. What they do is, is they just learn to channel it, which is why we have so much alcohol, drug abuse, sexual deviancy. What do you think? What do you think, Thomas? Do you think they handled it well? You're closest to a kid. I think they attempted, but it's a bit ham-handed in light of this. I mean, to be fair, I have this assumption of roughly 1989 as not being particularly adept on psychological issues. And to try and handle it in a comedy was always going to be a heavy lift. This was never going to be Ordinary People, which I actually think is a fairly astute film when it comes to trauma and grief and childhood psychology, but that's also a much different tone and a much different film. So at the same time, I understand where they're coming from that being labeled a special ed kid, even when I was growing up or was in high school in the mid aughts was kind of like this almost death sentence as far as your social status. And so I I get that portion of it, That being said, to somehow make a joke of the fact that his wife supposedly was a pothead in college and that has to do with their son's anxiety issues, we now know that it's just the opposite. He should be taking edibles. Yeah. (laughs) So any remaining questions for either of you? No. No. All right. Well, thank you for being on with us, Beth. For anyone that's interested in finding your work, where can they find you? I've got a podcast, Over 65 and Talking, and it's everywhere. Just put that in. And uh, that's what I do. And I do movie reviews for my age group, my point of view. So that's what I do. That's what I do with all my time. It makes me happy. And um, I enjoyed this very much. It was so in-depth. You're both delightful. I think all this time, and I know it was a lot, went really fast. I enjoyed every minute. So I want to thank you, and I really appreciate the invitation and the time I spent here. Well, thank you very much for your compliments and kind words. I know Dad and I both appreciate that. Dad, any final thoughts for the week? No, um, not really. I mean, next week we're doing uh, Misery. It's That's the one aspect of this podcast that I like is – we don't seem to do two things in a row. It's always very uh, unique each week. It's definitely a long, strange trip. <laughs> well, I'm going to listen. Well, thanks. Yeah, every time somebody talks about that, I start thinking about Cheech and Chong. 
And thank you all for listening this week. That will do it for us. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be heading back to the world of Stephen King for the second time with Misery from 1990, directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, starring Kathy Bates, James Kahn, and Lauren Bacall. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.